have an economy in dire need of innovation. Welcome to Let's Fix It, the podcast from the Schwab Foundation for Social Entrepreneurship and the World Economic Forum. From the townships of Cape Town to the streets of Sydney, we are talking to the leading social innovators to find out how they're fixing some of the world's biggest problems. You have to be ambitious, you have to be fearless. On this episode, we dive deep into the minds of two very creative people who are bringing about change within huge but vastly different organizations, United Nations and Nike. Subscribe to Let's Fix It on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And do take a minute to like, rate, and review us. I'm Pavitra Raja at the Schwab Foundation for Social Entrepreneurship. Join me and learn from some of the world's brightest minds who are quite literally fixing it. I love my job. Every day, I get to speak with some incredible people who are literally changing the world for the better. These are people who have spotted a serious issue in their community and have done something about it. That usually means that they have started something from the ground up. Lighting up lives via accessible renewable energy, making education systems more equitable and inclusive, bringing ancient culture to life via cutting-edge technology, these are the world's leading social entrepreneurs. Now, change happens within large organizations too. In both the public and private sectors, they create products, schemes, and policies that change our lives for the better as well. Usually, it's the entrepreneur that is to thank for this. A social entrepreneur is someone who behaves like a social entrepreneur whilst working within a large organization. Social entrepreneurs are ambitious employees who want to leverage their firm's resources to create positive social and environmental change. And this episode is all about how that happens. How are these individuals using entrepreneurial spirit and applying it within an organization to change the world for the better? To learn how entrepreneurs create change in large-scale institutions, I went the biggest one, the United Nations. The UN employs over 77,000 people in over 190 countries. So how is change made there? I sat down with public social entrepreneur Jonathan Wong, Working in a large institution myself, Jonathan has been a huge inspiration. He is the Chief of Technology Innovation at the United Nations Economic and Social Commission for Asia and the Pacific, ESCAP for short. And I started by asking him, what is he trying to fix? I suppose the short answer, it's a big problem, is the economy. As I see things, if we look back on history, entrepreneurs have been a source of innovation in economic dynamism. We've seen Entrepreneurs create jobs, create solutions that have lifted millions of people and billions of people out of poverty. But it's not always been good news, right? You know, through the industrial revolutions, we've seen CO2 emissions increase in step with the industrial revolutions. We've seen income inequalities growing at an alarming rate. We see great income inequalities e- even today. So I suppose, yeah, the problem we're trying to fix, I'm, I'm trying to fix kind of in a very small way is the economy. But really looking at how the economy can benefit both society environment as well as the economy or, or, or people, planet as well as, as well as profit. So in a, in a nutshell, that's what I'm trying to fix. Not a small task. So, you know, we have entrepreneurs at the Schwab Foundation. We have entrepreneurs in the Schwab Foundation, um, both kind of similar minded, uh, but one working within systems, the other or an existing systems like the public sector or private sector versus yeah. others kind of operating beyond, but again, working in partnership. Do you think fixing the economy is easier for social entrepreneurs or for someone like you? 
in many ways, you have to kind of, and I suppose it's why I'm an entrepreneur. You know, I, I work within large scale organizations trying to create change from the inside. And if you make the breakthroughs, the scale of these organizations support you to create that systematic change that, that, that you spoke about. But at the same time, you need that inspiration from the social entrepreneurs. You know, it's kind of, it's almost a story that, that inspires politicians, business leaders to actually think differently and act differently to reshape the economy, as I mentioned, that will work better for people and planet as well as profit. So, so I, I think it's a bit of both and you need to kind of come at it from both sides. Um, in that respect, it's both kind of top down and kind of grassroots up as well. You mentioned you see yourself as an entrepreneur. Um, let's let's break that up a little bit. What does the word okay. entrepreneur mean to you? For me, it's something about being kind of trying to create change and promote innovation within a large scale kind of organization or, or a big piece of the system, if you like, be it government or a corporation, as opposed to, I suppose, an entrepreneur who's starting something themselves. But what, what I think I am good at is working within large-scale organizations, navigating the complexities and trying to create that systemic change um, uh, kind of from the inside, for, for want of a better word. You talked again a little bit about your journey as a public sector uh, entrepreneur. Tell me a little bit about that journey. Did you always know you were going to work for the UN? I've never had a career path in mind. I honestly mean that. And, and people honestly don't believe me. This is why it's been quite scattergun. You know, I've worked in an NGO. I've worked in the private sector. I've worked in the public sector. worked for government. I now work in a multinational organization. It kind of shows that there's no real kind of strategy <laughs> around where I'm going. But what I've always believed in is the point I mentioned right up top around the need to kind of reshape the economy to better work, serve people and planet. And that's always been a kind of a theme throughout all the organizations I've worked in. When you talk about my journey and how I ended up here, it's about working out what you're good at and what you aren't good at. You know, as I mentioned, thank you for calling me an entrepreneur. I have several failed entrepreneurial ventures. But what I quickly realized was that, that I was actually quite good at working in bigger organizations and driving change. So I suppose my entrepreneurship journey started with the NHS in the UK, which is in terms of kind of staff and people, I think the fourth largest organization in the world. And that was kind of my first break into entrepreneurship, really, was getting a job at the NHS where I set up something called the NHS Institute for Innovation and Improvement, which was trying to drive change within this very complex organization, bringing in private sector thinking to deliver better healthcare services and bringing some innovation and technology as well. So that was kind of my first step into it. And kind of after a few years there, I saw a very attractive job at DFID, so the UK Department for International Development. And I took on the role as head of innovation there. And I suppose probably the next logical step was the UN. It, it was more kind of working out as I kind of moved on in my career what I was good at and being very honest about that, but also having that common theme and those principles and that objective throughout any organization I worked in, that if I could still work on that topic and that agenda, I'd be happy doing that, whether in NGO, private sector, multilateral or, or indeed a government organization. Coming to the UN right now, like this is often perceived and stereotyped as quite a large bureaucratic organizations, which is generally very difficult to change or shift. So how have you been operating as an entrepreneur in this space? I'll try and be honest as possible about kind of losing my job. The reason I moved to the UN, it was a very deliberate move, actually, in many regards. I mean, throughout my career, kind of working in developing countries, I often saw that development only happened well with the buy-in of a political and business elite. I've been in an aid organization like DFID, 
where, where you've seen aid in a humanitarian context work very well. In the development context, there are other actors that you have to engage with. And I very consciously, of course, didn't want to pick up the whole piece of that pie. But, but I did wonder, actually, what would it be like actually supporting governments to drive that change? And of course, there's no better platform for that than the UN. You're right. The, the UN is a very bureaucratic organization. Sometimes necessary, sometimes not. Many organizations are the same. I, having been in the private sector and, and people saying to me, oh, the private sector so, is, is so efficient and, and, and kind of responsive. I was saying, well, actually, not always the case. I, I think every organization has their quirks and, and, and intricacies in that respect. But in terms of kind of the UN where I work, and I mentioned the importance of political commitment, I think the first thing you look for is that political commitment. You know, if a government is serious about supporting social entrepreneurs and they give you that commitment, you'll see the UN system very quickly shift around that, where they will start prioritizing the agenda. I think sometimes when you're pushing an agenda from within the UN that governments are quite bought into, things are more difficult to move. But when you have that kind of perfect storm of the demand coming to you, serious commitment at the, at the highest level and the supply and the intelligence from within the UN to meet that, things can move quicker than you, you, you would even imagine. And, and if I look back on my seven years now in the UN, if you'd have asked me back then that by now we would have supported the Social Enterprise Act in Thailand, we would have integrated social entrepreneurship within the development strategy of Indonesia, that we've developed the impact investing plan for Bangladesh, that we have all 10 economic ministers of ASEAN signed up to the inclusive business guidelines, the first set of guidelines of its kind in the world. I would have laughed at you <laughs> and said that none of this would be possible. I mean, that's just a few examples. So this is what I mean. Things can move quickly with political commitment. The second point I would make is it's linking this to the bigger picture. And this is something I've learned the hard way, actually, within my time in the UN. This was my first UN job. And I'll give an example. I met with a finance minister of a country that I won't disclose. And I was trying to convince he or she of the importance of promoting and supporting social entrepreneurs. And, and he or she said to me, Jonathan, why would I care about this small segment, this tiny segment of my business community when I've got SMEs, corporations, mainstream investors, traditional banks to deal with? Why should I care? Embarrassingly, I went a bit quiet and I kind of went away and reflected on it. And, and, and what came back to me was, you need to link this to the bigger picture. Maybe if I had that time again, I wouldn't be talking about the need to promote social entrepreneurs, but actually how social entrepreneurs could create a whole different model. What some perceive may be kind of very niche actually is part of this bigger picture and part of that solution as well. Yeah, absolutely. Moving away from social entrepreneurship, social innovation as concepts to the social economy, which is you know something that we see play out. That is some of the work that we've been doing together would you like Absolutely. to give us a little bit of a gist on some of your work with the Schwab Foundation and the Forum on the Social Economy as well? I think certainly Davos this year was, it felt like a kind of breakthrough, that these ideas were kind of infiltrating the mainstream, you know, if you like. It, was, it, it didn't feel as niche as it was before. I mean, you have the chair of Deloitte, you know, sat there talking about social economy. You know, you have the EU there talking about their roadmap and action plan for, for, for the social economy. So all of a sudden, you had kind of these mainstream institutions really advocating for this agenda. And of course, that's linked to the point around the bigger picture. So no, it, it, it was great that it actually made it into the agenda. And, and again, this is credit to you and the whole working group as well in, in kind of driving this change forward. And, and of course, WEF is a very influential platform. Big media coverage, big social media coverage. Again, big messages. 
other parts of the multilateral system do listen as well, be it the UN, the World Bank, whoever it may be. These messages get picked up. And, and I think WEF's really important in doing that, in, in actually putting agendas like this front and center. And it certainly helps my agenda working in the UN. That, you know, big organizations and influential organizations like WEF are talking about the agenda that I'm working with. That's always reassuring to hear. And I know that we have a long way. This is really the start of something that we're working on together. I mean, you talked a little bit about this idea of becoming mainstream, but it's not quite there yet. I mean, you talked a little bit about what can be done to to make this move forward, but who are the partners or who do you need to really move the needle here? I opened up with what we're trying to fix the economy, which is like the biggest challenge in the world. I kind of pivot constantly between trying to look at this big picture and then just trying to pick up a specific piece that I feel that me and my organization can pick up. And to your point in partnerships, I mean, I really at the moment focus on supporting governments, put the sensible policies in place to promote social entrepreneurship, social economy type stuff. I feel that like the UN is well-placed to focus on that. But of course, if you want that systematic change, I go back to my point earlier, you need the buy-in from the political and business elite for good development to happen. And that's where partnerships with the organizations like Weff and Schwab Foundation come in really handy because you're too driving that change with the business community. You're bringing the policy agenda and governments to the platform as well. And of course, you need the NGOs there as well. You have these partnerships. And of course, a big part we focus on is the academic rigor around all of this. For mainstream kind of economics, shall we say, you know what your tools and metrics are. You can play with interest rates. You know, you can play with public spending. You know, you, you can tweak the tax rates. You know what your metrics are. You're looking at inflation, GDP. For the social economy, do we know what our tools are? And do we know what metrics are? And is there a playbook as to somebody, if a government said, okay, I get it, social entrepreneurship is important, what should I do? Could we answer that question in a logical way with a well-thought-through framework with an evidence base? The answer is probably not at the moment because many of the policies that I mentioned earlier from the Thai Social Enterprise Act to the impact investment strategy in, in Bangladesh are, are really in their infancy. So, so I think certainly in terms of partnerships, certainly business, government, NGO, but academia as well. If we're going to create this framework for governments and social economy, that's more kind of science than art, shall we say. I think the academic rigor is something that we really focus on going forward in, in working out what policies work and what don't in what context. You might do something here because I think you and I have some understanding of the social economy and social entrepreneurship <clears throat> and entrepreneurship as a concept. Perhaps let's go back to a very introductory question, really. Why does the economy need fixing? I think that's something maybe we should answer. Innovators and entrepreneurs have been a source of innovation in economic dynamism. You know, they've created jobs, they've lifted people out of poverty. But as we've seen through the industrial revolution, CO2 emissions have been uh, kind of increasing in step with the revolutions, you know, income inequalities are growing. Uh, and really, we're at that point now where I, I think there's this recognition that we have an economy that needs to work better for people and planet as well as profit. I think what the pandemic has also shown us is that really the, the pandemic's been a story of the haves and have-nots. You know, we've seen some tech companies' share prices soaring, while the very, very poorest people have been unable to make a living and don't have those social safety nets. Now, for me, that is not an economy that works, and that is an economy that needs fixing. And, and what the pandemic, on top of the point I raised earlier about the need for the economy to benefit people and planet as well as profit, shows that we have an economy in dire need of innovation. In my mind, there's no question about that. And there is evidence around that. And, and this is why it's kind of 
a fix, if you like, that I'm so focused on because it could be so impactful if we could kind of shift and pivot the economy to, 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 to again, to work better for people and find it as well as the bottom line. Why does this cause move you so much? Because there's a reason you, you yeah. know, created shifts within such large institutions that we get that you figured out that that's something that you're good at. But I guess I figured out your need, but why does that need feed you? Why do you do what you do? What fuels you every day to wake up in the morning and fix, in quotations, the economy? The reason I want to fix the economy, I call this a tale of two ports. I was born in England in a city called Hull. It's one of the poorer areas of the UK and was when I was growing up. But my family are from Shenzhen in China. Now, when I was younger, I used to split my time between Hull and Shenzhen. So I, again, every summer holiday was, oh, we're going to Shenzhen again, just every single time we go there. Back when I was growing up, I don't know if you know about Hull. It used to be a very thriving UK port, huge fishing industry, huge, just very economically sound, you know, happy people, people had jobs. And in time that deteriorated. So as I was growing up, I, I saw Hull deteriorate into one of the poorest cities in the UK. And that got me thinking about the economy, you know, how economics works, you know, how something so good could be some, so bad so quickly. At the same time, when I went to Shenzhen, I'm not going to give away how old I am. It was literally just a fishing port at the time, like a tiny fishing port. There was like a little village there, you know, nothing else. You look at Shenzhen today, it's known as the Silicon Valley of Asia. All the unicorns are coming out of there, tech startup haven for Asia. And it just got me thinking about the economy a lot more. And I'd see firsthand some of the environmental degradation that came with development, but also some of the huge inequalities that happened when people were moving into poverty and people were moving out. It wasn't a conscious thing, knowing that I wanted to fix the economy or, or, or look at how we could innovate for a new economy. But I think somewhere in my mind, it was always there. And I think it was only probably later on in my career that I actually could, I suppose, articulate it in a way and be more conscious of why I was working on a specific agenda. But, but no question, it was very much through my upbringing. Again, having that reflection from the West and the East, to, to, to be very crude, you know, seeing different cultures, but seeing economic development happen in very different ways, kind of different trajectories in, in, in two different cities. So, so I, I suppose that's kind of what kind of fueled my kind of curiosity for this agenda. Uh, any personal advice that you'd give to someone trying to be an entrepreneur? You have to be ambitious. You have to be fearless. You also have to be very humble. The, the problems that I work on haven't just appeared when I started working on them. I enter this space at a point in time, you know, and maybe even the end goal of the problem I'm trying to solve maybe won't happen in my lifetime. I'm very humble about that. But you have to think about what you can do on that journey and, and be very humble about what, what piece will you play in this grander picture? I mean, you, you look at economic development as it's happened, you know, everything from women's rights to labor rights, then co companies talking about CSR. Now it's moved on to shared value, you know, stakeholder value, you know, ESG has been mentioned. Hopefully next it will be the social economy. Will it be in my lifetime? I don't know. I hope so. But it's being very humble about that, but, but not discounting. You can make a really positive change. So, 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 so I think you, you need to be a bit humble sometimes as well and, and just recognize these problems have been around for a long time. We may not be the one to fix it right now, but we can have a huge impact in being a piece in that jigsaw. And certainly that humbleness helps you with the point you raised earlier on partnership as well and collaboration. You know, it's certainly going with a humble approach, recognizing that you are just one part of the system doesn't kind of dominate a whole agenda. You know, you can then work with business, NGO, academia, as I mentioned, whoever it may be. 
it, it really co-creating something quite special. I think that's beautiful. And and one thing that you mentioned a little bit about being an entrepreneur is that context is king, right? You yeah. really need to see where, which organization that you're in and how to operate that and have, as you said, strategic patience, but also have the humility to know that some of these problems, as you're saying, might not be fixed in this lifetime. What needs to happen, do you think, to fix this problem? I really honed down on the, on the particular thing that I think the UN is good at which is the government engagement and enacting policy change for the SDGs. And for me, that's broadly our social innovation entrepreneurship. Now, what success looks in, in my mind is when, when governments are putting in place, again, sensible evidence-based policies that support social entrepreneurship uh, and, and social economy. That's what it looks like for me. And then when you start seeing people benefiting from these policies. So to give an example, in Thailand, we have a royal decree that gives investors in social enterprises a 100% tax break in investments in social enterprises. You know, you know, people say, oh, policy doesn't really play out. But actually, something like that, pure legislation, actually could play a really catalytic role. I see my job as sharing that then with a broader community, like WEF, you know, the business community, the social entrepreneurship community, engage the rest of the community and hope that we can move forward in a systematic way with full transparency around what, what each party is doing. It's, it's kind of how I think about it. That was public social entrepreneur Jonathan Wong from the United Nations. Are you too excited to fix the economy just like Jonathan? Let us know on social media. Our Twitter is at Schwab Found. You're listening to Let's Fix It from the Schwab Foundation for Social Entrepreneurship, where this week we're talking to entrepreneurs and finding out how they make change in some of the world's biggest organizations. We'll be back just after this short break. I'm Hiba Ali, host of the Rethinking Humanitarianism podcast. This season, we're reimagining global governance at a historic inflection point. Amid climate change, COVID-19, the invasion of Ukraine, we're asking how a more equitable world order could help us better address the challenges of our time. Is there a viable alternative to the United Nations? That is not a Security Council. That is a United Nations Insecurity Council. And it clearly has to be dismantled. Is there a different way of managing global public goods like vaccines? What global public investment suggests is that all countries should contribute. Now, that sounds incredibly radical. And how is a small island nation like Barbados revolutionizing climate financing? But we say there are five things that you can do that if you did those achievable things, it would actually redraw the global financial system. Want to better understand how we can solve global challenges more effectively? Search for The New Humanitarian wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Let's Fix It, and this week it's all about entrepreneurship. Before the break, we heard from Jonathan Wong, who talked about his experience in creating change via his role at the United Nations. Now you must be wondering, hey, I work in a corporation. How do I create change here? Not to worry, we've got you covered. We went to one of the world's largest companies, Nike, to learn how they just do it. Corporate social entrepreneur Sam McCracken is one of the most generous people you will ever have the pleasure of knowing. From working at the distribution center to becoming a general manager, Sam's journey is truly a unique one. He is the visionary leader behind Nike and Seven, which is bringing sport to indigenous youth across North America. When I sat down with Sam, he just couldn't wait to tell me 
all about his journey and his 25-year career at Nike. Yayaya, Peter. Hapagunta e. Hudashana. My given name is Sam McCracken. I come from the Assiniboine Sioux Tribe on the Fort Peck Indian Reservation in northeastern Montana. If you don't mind, I'll just translate what I said. I said, welcome relatives. I honored my great-grandfather, who I'm named after, Pagunta, and the Hudishana is my clan of the Assiniboine tribe where I come from in Montana. The introduction is just part of our culture, historical traditions that we want to always welcome our relatives, no matter where they are, to any conversation I have outside of my community. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that, Sam. I mean, N7 is an incredible brand and has so much of you in this, in, in the brand as well. And I, lo- I want to know a little bit about that and also your own uh, journey as a social entrepreneur. So maybe let's get started with the question I ask every social entrepreneur and innovator that joins this podcast. Uh, it's what are you fixing? And, you know, the Schwab Foundation looks more not just at the problems, but what are what are the root causes of the problems? We're very interested in that. And that's what's special about this community. And Sam McCracken, what are you fixing? It's really about access to sport. Because I work at the largest sports and fitness company in the world, I have a, a very interesting platform to be able to, to give back to the community I care most about, which is my indigenous community in North America. What I'm attempting to fix is how do you bring sport and all of its benefits to address, more importantly, the health disparities in our communities, right? Type 2 diabetes is running rampant. Mental health is really an important component to us uh, surviving through everything that we've been through the historical trauma and the genocide that happened way before my time. Sport is something that brings communities together and it brings folks together. So that's been my platform. That's what I've lived off of for the last 20 plus years is really, you know, laser focused on indigenous communities in North America. But really, how do you bring sport to them? Tell me a little bit about your journey in realizing the importance of sport and why is it so important for all communities to have access to it? Well, my journey was has been very unique in a corporate environment. I started working at Nike in 1997, unloading containers in the warehouse. And then I got a call from my own community who were looking to use Nike product as incentives to promote physical activity. And uh, I took that concept and idea thinking if my community wanted access, why wouldn't all communities in North America want that same access? So with that, I wrote a one-page business plan and presented it. And in July of 2000, they accepted the opportunity for me to become the business manager for indigenous communities, Nike. With that, kind of, kind of started that whole journey, and it just kind of continued to evolve and progress in a way that I couldn't fathom. It, I just was just on the ride, taking day by day, but truly staying passionate about the one purpose that I had was representing indigenous communities at Nike. And so through that journey, I've, I've had a great opportunity to really leverage the power of the Nike brand, more, more importantly, to inspire and enable 1.5 million indigenous youth to participate in sport and physical activity. And that's been the mission and vision of my work since day one. Yeah, the work of N7 has contributed in excess of $8 plus million back to bring sport and all of its benefits to indigenous community. I want to get that number to 10, 12, 14, so I'm still driven for, for that. And it really started with a conversation I had at a, as a young man with my grandfather, who was sending me off to go to live in California. I was living in Montana. And he really talked about seven generations and what that meant. And so I reflected back on that conversation when I when I started this journey with what is now known as Nike N7. And then the N stands for native or Nike, could stand for either one, depending on who we're talking to. But the seven always stays grounded in the foundation of the work. And that reads, in every deliberation, we must consider the impact of our decisions 
on seven generations. And as part of that conversation I had as a young man, my grandfather explained to me that I was in the middle. I looked back three generations for guidance, direction, and focus and learn from the people who came before me. And then I look forward three generations to hoping positive change or make impact or make difference in, in generations who come after me to allow our community to continue to thrive and prosper with that same mentality. And then just that part of that journey, it's all about relationships. You know, when you work in a corporate environment, relationships are critically important. And trust is something that is it manifests itself, right? The community has to trust you that you have their best interest at the forefront. And the company has to trust you to allow you to do the work you need to do to create positive change or bring sport and all of its benefits to indigenous communities. So that trust factor for me has been really critically important. And I think I've garnered the trust of not only my community, but my company as well. That's incredible. And you've kind of been that middleman almost, right? You've been able to serve your community, but you've also been able to serve this organization that has given you so much, which is quite a unique place to be. What did it take for you to be that person? What was your journey? What's your success been? What has been the strives as well in this path in founding N7? I'll use a little bit of a sports cliche, and that's passion. You have to be able to maneuver through the challenges that may face you, but continue to stay positive that you know that you're doing the right thing on behalf of both entities, right? And that's where, again, we'll go back to that trust thing. So I continue to have the trust of the company to allow me to manifest my ideas and my concepts that I knew what my community meant, what I knew what my community wanted, and then garner that support, whether it's through physical support, like them coming in and helping me figure it out, to financial support, where they're providing me the resources to be able to do the work that, that I felt needed to be done. I think, you know, the future is bright for the next young generations of entrepreneurs that are going to come into corporate America, not the traditional Harvard graduate with a multiple degree. I am a blue collar guy that rolls up his sleeves and unloaded. But one thing they couldn't take away was my passion and my vision for what I knew I wanted to get done. And I think you tie those two things together and it's a recipe for success. When you came up with this N7 idea and you took it to them, how did they react and how did that change take place in the organization? Well, I think they, from a reaction perspective, I think they, they didn't react uh, in any particular way. They just gave me the freedom to be a social entrepreneur in a major corporation and make sure I had the resources I needed to be able to do the work. And I think part two of that with the community side now, it's access, always being accessible to them so they feel like they're part of your journey. It's been really important for me to have those two components where the community has access to me, whether it's via phone, email, whatever, I'm going to reply and I'm going to be part of it. And then being visible in the community. So going out and visiting and participating and seeing the next generation of social entrepreneurs out there and talking to them, crossing over into the Nike side too, giving uh, interns opportunities to work for me and work with me and work on N7 and feel part of what we call internally as the N7 family. And it truly, we try to keep that family mentality there so everybody feels like their voice is heard and they're participating in all decisions that are made. Ultimately, we're making the right decision on behalf of the community. You've got this unique capability to speak to your own community, but also take their needs to a different market and also speak to that market, which is quite a unique skill set. If you don't mind me asking, what do you think is one key ingredient that you need to build trust? I think the one key an individual needs to build trust is be who they are. I don't think if you talk to anybody who knows me, they know who Sam McCracken is. They know who I am, they know what I represent, and they know my core values. 
I think that's the kind of the secret sauce of that. I, I don't try to be somebody that I'm not. I never forget where I come from. I come from a rural Indian reservation in Montana. It's, it keeps you very humble, keeps you very uh, appreciative of what you have. And I, I think that that's part of the DNA and the personality of any good socialpreneur. Yeah, they're going to have some drive. They're going to have passion. They're going to have a vision. They're going to have all those things. But I think the secret sauce is being humble about all of that and making sure that you're bringing people along the journey with you. This didn't happen alone. A lot of people down the down the road helped me, and they still, a lot of people still help me. We move forward on this journey to think in seven who we could never vision it could ever be. If there's one piece of advice that you'd also share with folks who are wanting to become a corporate social entrepreneur, who are in an organization that maybe can give them resources, but they don't really know how to access it, or can give them a platform, but they're not sure what to do with it, what would be something that you'd share with them as well? I think, you know, one of the things that I always tried to do, and my, my guidance would be, so only on the corporate side, and now on the, the philanthropic side, it's different, but and as to be a cor- corporate social entrepreneur, you got to show how they're adding value to the business. And I think one of the things that we've done, if you, if you think about the employee resource group and then the N7 brand, one of the things I've, I've tried to do is marry the two together and have the public view of N7, the brand marketing of N7, is the employee engagement arm of the employee resource group. We want to engage our employees and the work we're doing and and seven and we do that through our employee resource group and then knowing that you're adding value to the corporation i think is really important so i think as you your initial plan and you start to, to to build that plan to present to whoever the one advice i got from from a great leader was make sure it's all on one page when you put something on one page then you have to have a conversation and when you have a conversation the individual you're having the conversation with could truly see the, the passion you have for what's on that one page. You know, you see people with their resumes and then, you know, it's multiple pages, tons of, tons of accolades, all that kind of stuff, or business plans or, you know, decks of 20 plus pages, so on and so forth. If you can package it up on one page, then you can get to the next phase, which is writing the strategy and the plan. But to get, to be a social entrepreneur, you got to get the idea over the top. And I think that was one of the things that, I, that helped me. I didn't know how to write a strap plan. I didn't know how to do any of that stuff, but I could put together a pretty compelling one page document and then I can also represent who I am and what I wanted and have that passion that I had to give back to my community. We talk about sustainability as a concept, whereas Nike at N7, sustainability is just part of every everyday language, everyday work. It's not a distinct concept. Can you explain that to me a little bit? Because I think that's quite fascinating. When you respect your culture, then you're going to respect things that surround your culture. And from us, culturally, Mother Earth, the earth is something that's very sacred to us because that's where we get our food and our water and um, everything comes from at some form or fashion from the earth. And if you don't protect it and take care of it, then you're going to lose, you're going to lose access to something that's vitally important to you to survive. And so as I started to build the manifesto for N7, it was just a natural for us to ingrain that cultural value of protecting mother earth into the core values of what N7 is as a brand and as a philanthropic effort. Sustainability is not a word in our culture. It's a way of life. What needs to happen, do you think, for you to feel like you're close to fixing the problem or attempting to fix the problem? Yeah, that's a really difficult question. Um, Because if I knew the answer, I'd already fix it. So I think it's just continually to learn and to continue to support 
and listen to the voice of, we have a saying at Nike, we listen to the voice of the athlete. And at N7, we listen to the voice of the community, right? So the community really tells us what their needs are. But there's no way that I would know what the needs were in 500 plus communities in the US and 600 plus communities in Canada, that what, what their needs are. So you really have to listen to that. So in order to fix it, you got to be good listeners. I think that would be, I would think that would be my, my words of advice to anybody trying to fix anything is you got to listen and learn first before you attempt to fix anything. It's something that N7 working on that's exciting you personally, something that you're doing that's exciting you. I know you just got back from a sabbatical. What are you really looking forward to? Uh, coming back, you know, gun, you know, for me, I'm just full of energy. You know, I'm, I'm just, I'm just ready to go, ready to get back. The, the team sees that in corporate America, everything changes. So we've changed the way we operate, our operating, everything's changed because of the, the e- economic um, headwinds that are out there and all the different things that are in front of you. And I think those are all exciting things for someone who has passion and a vision for what they want to do. And I look forward to, to kind of just moving the agenda forward. And then who's the successor? I, I'm excited to, to, to take that next generation and draft off their energy, what they see for our community. And who's that next indigenous leader that slides into the chair that Sam McCracken sat in for hopefully 30 years? That was Sam McCracken from Nike and 7 Want to hear more ways social innovators are fixing it? Then check out our website, schwabfound.org. Hey, what are you waiting for? Just do it. Thanks to our guests today, Jonathan Wong and Sam McCracken. Please subscribe to Let's Fix It wherever you get your podcasts and please do leave us a rating or a review. This episode of Let's Fix It was presented by me, Pavitra Raja, and produced by Alex Court. With thanks to Amy Kirby and Jerry Johnson for editing and Tom Birchall for sound design. Special thanks to our partners, Mutsepe Foundation, and thanks also to our executive producers, Georg Schmidt and Francois Bonici. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more inspiring stories.